the late uh, Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller used to say often that what you believe about your future will determine everything about how you live right now. More than anything else, what you believe about your future shapes your today. And what he means by that is human beings are hope-driven creatures. We are driven by our hope. I never realized how powerful that was until Nate and I toured Auschwitz at the end of the Poland mission trip we went on a couple months ago. Nate and I and one of the pastors there, Ben, we toured Auschwitz there in Poland. And when you walk inside those gates of the concentration camp, even 80 years later, you can still feel the dread. You can still feel the despair of that place, even though we're about a century removed from the awful events that happened there. And as you go through it all, as they take you on the tour and go through the concentration camp, the gas chambers, the bunks, all these horrifying things, you really start to question, how could anyone possibly survive this? How could anyone possibly survive so much evil and suffering? One of the survivors of Auschwitz was Viktor Frankl. Some of you might have heard of him. He's written a best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychiatrist in Austria when the Nazis sent him to Auschwitz in 1942. And during his time in Auschwitz and some of the other concentration camps he was sent to, he noticed something really profound in the midst of all that suffering. The prisoners who had something to look forward to, the prisoners who had something in their future, something concrete, family back home, friendships they missed, a place they loved, a faith to cling to, these were the ones that were able to withstand the suffering. But others who didn't have friends or family, or others who had lost their purpose, even though they went through the exact same conditions, oftentimes did not make it. Frankel writes this. He says, Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him a future. Because once they lost their future, they ended up losing their lives. What made the biggest difference at Auschwitz? Hope. A future to hold on to. And that's what will make the biggest difference for you this morning as well. This is Paul's concern in our passage in Romans 8. He wants to strengthen the church's faith by showing the church its future. Because, Tim Keller is right, what you believe about your future will determine how you live today. I think this is why Martin Luther said, and I have it on the inside of your bulletin in the quote section, I think this is why Martin Luther said that he had two days on his calendar, that day and this day. And those are the two points from the passage. First, let's look at that day. What is the future hope for the Christian? And then we'll look at this day. How does that future hope start to shape our present lives? So first, that day. What is the Christian hope? Romans 8 is perhaps the most famous chapter in all the Bible. In fact, if you're looking to memorize some scripture in the new year, you're not going to regret turning to Romans 8. But our section, Romans 8, 18 through 25, is often the most skipped over section. And that's a shame. Because in Romans 8, 18 through 25, you get the whole story of the world. You get God's entire plan for his creation, the zoomed out picture. And once you see it, you're never able to forget it. And if you're not a Christian here, we're really glad you're here. 
And one of the things that you should really consider about Christianity is that in Christ, he actually gives you a future to look forward to. So what is that future? What is that future the Christian longs for? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what Paul just said is remarkable if true. That all the sufferings of this world, if you add them all up, the evil, the hurt, the sickness, the sin, when you put all that together, it will not even be worth comparing to the future glory that's coming for us. Notice how Paul deals with his current situation. Notice how Paul deals with his present suffering. He determines his presence by the reality of his future. But we often do the opposite, don't we? Instead of determining our presence by the reality of our future, we determine our future by the reality of our presence. When we're going through something, especially when we're going through suffering, you feel its heaviness, don't you? You feel its weight bearing down on your life, and you project that into your future. That's what's so hard about suffering, because when you suffer, you think, this is going to last forever. You're determined that what you're going through right now will constantly be your future. But Paul says to do the opposite. Let your future determine your presence. Paul says, let the weight of your eternal glory not take away your pain, but start to outweigh your pain. Because this future is so glorious. And you notice in Romans 8, it's so glorious that everything is groaning for it. Verses 19 through 22, we're told that creation itself is groaning. Verses 23 through 25, we're told that Christians are groaning. And then verse 26, which is in the passage we're looking at right now, it even says the spirit inside of the Christian is groaning. So what is all this groaning about? Look at verse 20. Creation, because of our sin, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is that hope? Verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just like we long to be set free from the sufferings of this present time, the world does too. Creation longs to be set free. And what this is telling us is that in the end, God is not just going to redeem us. He's actually going to redeem everything. You see, for most people, if you come from a religious background, you see heaven as the ultimate goal. So your hope becomes just escaping this world. If you come from a not religious background, this world becomes your ultimate goal. So your hope becomes, I need to live entirely for the things of this world. But Paul says for the Christian, it's actually much different. Our hope is not in escaping this world. Our hope is not in completely living for this world. Our hope is heaven coming to this world. This is what we read in Revelation when John says at the end of it all, we will not be leaving earth for heaven. God's actually bringing heaven for us. Revelation 21 verse 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepares a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
This is why we pray each week in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because you see in the first coming, he makes us new. In the second coming, he makes all things new. And with a future that glorious, with a future of heaven coming to earth, of course we groan. Of course creation groans. Because every time you see something in this world that doesn't feel like heaven, that doesn't seem like it's the way it's supposed to be, don't you groan? Like Romans 8 says. We have something inherently in us that just wants to see the world made right. And when we feel like the world is going wrong, we groan. My daughter Lydia reminds me of this on a weekly basis. Kids are the best at this, they really are. Because we can get numb to it over time. We can start to accept as we grow older, well, that's just the way the world is. The world is, is sad and there's suffering. That's just the way the world is, but not our kids. You see, our kids know the story better than us. When I'm driving on Nicholsville Road and I see a homeless person on the side of the street, I might have pity in my heart, but I tend to look away. Lydia can't stand it. She can't stand to see someone standing on the side of the street, and she will literally make us pull the car over because she has to do something. So much so that we now carry snack bags in the back of my car because I was spending half my paycheck at Chick-fil-A. You see, there's something inside Lydia that knows. She knows people that aren't supposed to be hungry. She knows people should not be without a home. She knows people should not be standing on the side of the road alone. So she groans, and she should groan. Because in those moments, whether she knows it or not, her heart is crying out for the Christian hope. Her heart is crying out for a world made new by God's redemption. That glorious day when God will make all this suffering finally come untrue. So when was the last time you groaned? Paul says, when we know our future, we will groan. But notice he didn't stop there. He does not leave us in our groanings. He says, take your groaning straight to glory. Take your groanings in this present suffering up to your final glory. Theology of the end times, especially in the last 50 years, in American evangelicalism has gotten really, really weird. When you hear the word end times, your mind goes to crazy things. People trying to predict the date, trying to figure out the symbols, trying to turn everything into a secret code, all these prophecies. What does that mean? What does this mean? But you know what? In the Bible, when the writers bring up the end times, it is never for speculation. It's always for strength. They bring up the end times because the church is going through suffering and the church needs that strength. They bring up the end times because the church is struggling with sin and they're trying to give them encouragement to fight sin. The end times were meant for the Christian to strengthen us, to keep us going. And that's not just true biblically, that's been true historically. Whenever Christianity is a minority or marginalized in persecution and poverty, they don't just look back at Jesus' first coming, they long for his second. Why is there such a longing for the second coming of Jesus? Because they need it. They need it. 
Do you? Do you need his second coming this morning? Do you need to desperately join the chorus of Revelation that says over and over again, come Lord Jesus? Can we as a church in 2024 agree to put that day finally back on our calendar? Not just for our study, not just for our speculation, but to actually strengthen us for what we're up against. So if like the great hymn says, this bright hope for tomorrow actually gives strength for today, what does that strength for today look like? Let's look at that next. We've seen that day and our future hope. Now let's look at this day and how that future hope shapes us right now. This day, what will happen to us as we take our groanings to glory? Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. With patience, Paul? Are you kidding me here? You just paint this glorious picture of Jesus coming back, of his redemption of the world, the resurrection of our bodies, this heaven on earth, this glorious picture. And how does that change us? You're going to be patient. This feels like the ultimate letting the air out of the balloon for the Apostle Paul. Because we'll do almost anything but patience, won't we? Give us anything to accomplish, but do not tell us to be patient. Y'all notice in the announcements, the women's ministry has an event on Saturday, this January 13th. It's a really great event where they want to put scripture into their minds, coming up with one word or one verse. And I'm not sure, I could be wrong here, but I don't think many people are going to put patience because you know once you put that word out there, God starts working on that. In fact, when I was first looking at this passage before Christmas, wondering about what does Paul mean here to wait with it, wait for patience, I got the flu. And you know what I wanted after I got the flu? I wanted nothing to do with patience. I joke with Celeste that my word went from patience to just roll over. Figure out a way to just roll over in bed. Yet Paul is clear here. He says this glorious future will create a people who can wait. It will create a people who are patient. And as you start to think about that more, you start to meditate on what Paul is saying here, you start to realize that everything that truly matters in your life requires the deepest amounts of patience. And in a world that demands everything right now, we as a church, we as Christians, have to recover the Christian virtue of patience. Notice what he says patience is, because this is very important. Far from passivity, patience is a hope. Patience is an eagerness for the future that helps you endure today. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Patience is an eagerness for the future that actually helps you endure today, which is exactly what Viktor Frankl saw at Auschwitz. Look back at verse 23 and look at patience eagerness. Verse 23, Paul says something remarkable. He says in verse 23, as Christians, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So today, right now, we are the first fruits of that redemption, that coming glory. First fruits means the first crop of the season. What did that first crop signify? There's more coming, right? The first crop was the guarantee that more is coming. 
So do you see what Paul is saying? Because the Christian has been redeemed, because the Christian has been given the Holy Spirit, we are now the guarantee to the world that this is coming. We are the guarantee to the world that the new heavens and new earth is coming because we've been made new right now. We get to live out God's redemption for the world right now. You are the anticipation of all that. In this way, the Christian life is a gigantic signpost to the world of its future reality. And that creates an eagerness in us, doesn't it? One commentator said that creation eagerness is almost like creation standing on its tiptoes because we've got a taste of it. We just haven't got the full reality of it. We need that eagerness. We need that anticipation because we're not there yet. We're not in glory yet. We're still in the present suffering. But that eagerness, what it does, it will help you endure to glory. It will help you be patient so you'll actually keep going. My first couple of months of being a pastor here a few years ago, I was most excited about a lot of things, but I was really excited about being the pastor of mercy because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to fix poverty. I wanted to bring heaven to earth. I had all this eagerness about me, and I quickly found out I was weighing over my head. I can't fix poverty. So I called a guy who had been doing this for a long time. He had been in a similar role for over 20 years. And once I got on the phone, I started talking to him about all my excitement, all my plans, all my strategies, all my hopes of this is how our church is actually going to fix poverty in Lexington. This is how we're going to be the mercy of God in our city, and it's going to change everything. And after I talked for 30 minutes, not asking him a single question, he finally got silent, and I said, well, what would be the first thing you do? You've been doing this for 20 years. What, what, what would you do? And he told me to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. And he told me when I memorized 1 Corinthians 13, remember the first thing it says about love is that it's patient. Was he trying to discourage me in my eagerness? No, he was trying to save me. He wanted me to endure, and for me to endure, I was going to have to be patient with poverty. I was going to be patient with people. I was going to be patient with myself. Because if I had the mindset that I was going to be the one to do it, that our church was going to be the one to fix all the problems in the world, we were going to burn out quickly. Because we don't fix poverty, God fixes poverty. We don't bring heaven to earth, God brings heaven to earth. And that's the key. We are just witnesses to it. We are the anticipation of redemption, but we're not the answer. We're the anticipation of it, but church, we're not the answer to it. And you know what? Something happens when you start realizing that. When you start realizing that God's in control, that he really will bring his redemption. When you don't have to save the world, you can actually start loving your neighbor. You can stop fretting about all the things going on in the world. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to force every situation. You do not have to fix the world. God will fix the world so you can be patient. You can be patient, eagerly expecting his glory to come so you can endure faithfully now. This is what the early church did. A question that has puzzled scholars for centuries both religious and non-religious scholars, is how in the world did the early church grow? This small, 
an organized group of people who worship a crucified Savior? How did it go from this small group of people to the most dominant religion in just a few centuries? The early church had no political power. It had no influence. It was constantly persecuted and marginalized. In their worship service in the early church, they couldn't even open it up to outsiders most of the time because of fear of being found out. So how do you grow with all that? The historian Alan Crider points out in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He points out that when you study the early church, not one document was written on evangelism. Not one document was written on evangelism. But you know what they did write on? There's three documents from the early church written on patience. From Tertullian in 200 A.D., Cyprian in 256 A.D., and Augustine in 417 A.D., all writing to the church, you have to be patient. How did the early church grow despite everything being against them? They were a people of patience, trusting in the coming glory and living that out for a watching world. And Crider describes their patience as a process of holy ferment, Totally invisible, underneath the surface, but constantly bubbling up this secret power that would end up turning the world upside down. Because you see, patience, as it turns out, changes everything. That's what our God shows us throughout the Bible. The Bible starts out in Genesis 1 with the glory of God, but quickly turns into the greed of man. Why did Adam and Eve eat of the fruit? They could not wait on the promises of God. And because they could not wait in their impatience, they took for themselves. And that inability of wait, that that inability not to wait, becomes the story of God's people. So much so that when you get to Exodus 32, after God rescues them out of slavery through the Red Sea, leads them day by day in the wilderness with manna and water from heaven, guiding them and providing for them, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive God's law. And we are told in Exodus 32 that when the people saw that Moses delayed, they could not wait. And and so what did they do? They took matters into their own hands and they crafted a golden calf in their own image. Because they could not wait on the delay of Moses, they made idols to themselves. And then you get to Exodus 34. And Moses at this point has no clue what God's going to do. He has no clue how God is going to respond. Is he done with them at this point? And God miraculously doesn't just show Moses who he is. He shows Moses how he is. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his character. And this is the Lord's character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, Moses, I'm really, really patient with you. I'm really, really patient with my people. And as you get to the New Testament, it becomes unfathomable how deep that promise goes. Because God is so patient that he would take on flesh in his son. Nine months in a womb for our God. We just celebrate it. But think about the patience of that. Nine months in a womb for our God. Then 30 years of obscurity for our God. Three years of ministry with crowds that used him, 
Pharisees that tested him and followers that doubted him. And in his perfect patience, he actually lets his creation hand him over to death. From Judas to Pilate, from Pilate to the soldiers, soldiers to the cross, Jesus goes silently the whole time. And at any time during this whole process, Jesus could have stopped it all. He could have saved himself calling down angels, but instead he does not, patiently dying so he could save you. How did Jesus do it? How did he endure so patiently? Hebrews 12 tells us exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 8. Hebrews 12, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the cross because he was looking at the future glory, the glory of our salvation, the glory of his resurrection, the resurrection of all things. And that's what you have to look at as well. You have to put your eyes on the future glory because this life is much too hard to go without it. This life is much too hard to go without his glory. You will not be able to fight sin this year without his glory. You will not be able to face suffering this year without his glory. Everything that matters in this life requires patience and you will not be able to have it without his glory. But here's what Paul says, and this is the best news in the world. Paul says, with the expectation of that future glory, you'll actually be able to endure anything. Anything this world brings to you in this year, you'll be able to endure it with God's future glory in mind. On Christmas Eve night, as I was uh, coming down with the flu that I didn't realize I was coming down with, I thought it'd be a great time to put together Joshua's Christmas present. He just started his first season of basketball, so we got him a goal. And the instructions said less than an hour, which is hilarious. The instructions came in about six font. They were 40 steps jumbled together in 40 pages. And as soon as I started looking at it, I immediately called my dad and said, you've got to get over here. You've got to come over here and help me. And once we managed to get through all the instructions and get the goal together after a couple of hours, not less than an hour, definitely a couple of hours, I decided to fill it with sand because I was out of my mind. Some reason I thought I was going to be able to pour these four uh, 50-pound bags of sand into this quarter-sized hole like it was nothing. And we'd just be done. And this pouring of sand actually took twice as long as building the goal. We tried a funnel, but it kept getting stopped up. So we eventually had to get my dog's food scooper, and we'd scoop some out of the uh, bag, put it in the quarter hole, scoop some more, put it in, tilt up the gold so it goes down in it, pour more, pour more, over and over and over again. And I remember thinking somewhere between the first and second bag, we're not going to make it. This is not worth it. We're not going to make it. We're going to have to cancel Christmas. (laughs) But you know what kept me going? All joking aside, what kept me going as we were on our knees pouring this sand into this tiny hole was that next morning. I wanted to see Joshua's face. I wanted to see his face coming down those stairs, opening that garage door, and seeing that basketball goal. And you know what? When I saw his face, everything was worth it. Those hours seemed like nothing at all, and I could care less about that stupid sand. 
Christian, you're going to see Jesus' face when he comes back. You're going to see Jesus' face when he comes back. And he's going to take the time to wipe away every tear that this world gave you. Because that's how patient he is with you. And everything you went through will now be worth it. So in this new year, will you do something for me? Will you keep going? Will you keep going? Because Jesus really is coming back. And when he comes back, he's bringing his full redemption with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for you. We're thankful for the ways your spirit groans inside of us to stir our affections deeper for you. And I pray you stir our affections deeper for your second coming. Lord, that you'd fix in our mind the concrete image of you coming back to make all things new. And that would give the people in this room great hope to endure on. Lord, for those that are suffering so much right now with grief and discomfort and sickness and the fight against sin, Lord, may your glory overwhelm them and give them the courage to keep going and to persevere, waiting patiently on you who always comes to fulfill your promises. And now we pray as as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.